This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. As Congress debates a tax overhaul, one Colorado economist set out to see what Americans who aren't politicians would do if they were in charge of taxing and spending. Sven Steinmo is a political economist at CU Boulder who studies economic behavior. He also looks at who pays their taxes and who doesn't. And it blew us away when we learned how much the U.S. government loses out. Sven, welcome to the show. Thank you. You wrote recently in the Washington Post that Americans really aren't looking for a tax cut and definitely not one on the wealthy. Uh, Did you find that to be true for both Trump and Clinton supporters? Well, there's obviously a difference between the Trump and Clinton supporters. My study actually looked at, we gave them the budget, a version of the real federal budget, and we asked them, what would you do to reduce the deficit or the debt? And both Republicans and Democrats increased taxes on the wealthy. Many, and especially Democrats, of course, increased taxes on corporations. There's a lot of other studies out there now which directly ask people, should we cut taxes on the wealthy or cut taxes on corporations? And the vast majority of Americans, Republicans and Democrats, do not think so. So this tool, um, by the way, we have something similar at our website if people want to do this themselves at Mm CPR.org. This tool allowed them to make spending and taxation decisions. And how does that compare then, what you found, to what the House and Senate are considering? Remarkably different. I think the most shocking thing that we found was that Americans are actually willing to make all kinds of small cuts in spending and also increase taxes to balance the budget. The budget deficit isn't salient for most people. That is to say that they're not thinking about the budget deficit. But when they do think about it, they say, oh, that should be cut. And then they're willing to make the kinds of choices that apparently our congressmen are not willing to make. I really expected, to be honest, that the Democrats would simply increase taxes on the rich and cut defense spending, and the Republicans would simply cut welfare and so all kinds of social spending. And that's simply not what we found. The vast majority of people were able to actually balance the budget and were able to do it by a kind of a balanced approach. You know, there are different preferences, to be sure, but they were much better at balancing our budget than our Congress is. Uh, what emerged when you looked at their priorities? Were there patterns, themes? Well, the major thing we found is that people were willing to raise revenue by increasing taxes on the wealthiest individuals. And it's amazing how much money you can get by simply raising the average tax rate by a few percent on people over earning over 150000 or 250000 and so on. The Republicans increased taxes on the wealthy less than the Democrats did. But most people were also willing to cut several spending items. I guess it's not surprising if you study uh, public opinion, but we found that most people were willing to cut spending on foreign aid and on congressional uh, expenditures and things like that. Unfortunately, there's simply not very much money there. So when you're really trying to balance a budget, you have to go after the big ticket items or you have to raise revenues. And the other thing we found is that people were willing very often to raise taxes on themselves. So we have data on the income of the respondents. And most people actually were willing to pay a couple percent higher in taxes in order to balance the budget. Now, this uh, squares with what the Pew Research Center has found, that about 53 percent of those surveyed say they pay 
about the right amount. So mm-hmm. just over half of Americans, you know, aren't complaining, in other words, about the, the rate of their taxation. Did this surprise you? I've studied tax policy and tax history and, and opinions for a long time. So it didn't surprise me that people are fairly satisfied with their own tax burden. Overall, we've seen this for the last 30 years in American tax uh, policy that people think that taxes on the rich are too low, taxes on corporations are too low, and taxes on the poor are too high. And on myself, that is the middle class, which is what most of us are, they think taxes are about right. One of the things that was a little different about our study is we said, okay, now here's the budget. I mean, look at how big the budget deficit. The budget deficit is $20 trillion, which is equivalent to the total gross national product of the U.S. and is equivalent to about $67,000 per person in the U.S. So in other words, every single person owes $67,000 for the debt that the government has borrowed on our behalf. And when people realize that, they go, oh, wow. We really need to balance the budget. And then they're willing to even pay more taxes themselves. The argument um, when it comes to cutting taxes for the wealthy and on corporations is that it will trickle down, that that will create jobs, it will create prosperity. How does that square with, you know, what (laughs) you're finding? What George Bush Sr. called voodoo economics didn't work back in the 1980s. It didn't work under... George Bush. It's, I mean, it's a theory or a faith, you might call it. The evidence isn't there. And interestingly, the most Americans don't believe it either. That's also something that Pew has recently done a study on. And the majority of Americans simply don't think that's true, that they're going to get benefits from the cutting on taxes on companies and so on. Now, I personally think the tax rates on corporations in America should be brought down, mind you, because they are internationally higher and it would actually make our system more efficient and more competitive if they actually cleaned up the tax system so that it was more coherent and less riddled with loopholes. I'm sorry to say that neither of the two bills before Congress right now will likely do that. In other words, they're going to make the system more complicated, and that will have a dysfunctional effect in my view. Uh, Sven, how many people in the U.S. who owe taxes don't pay them? Well, we don't know exactly what the number of people who don't pay their taxes are. And it's, and there are people who literally are off the tax grid. But the real issue is people who don't pay all the taxes that they should pay. In other mm-hmm. words, who uh, claim more deductions, the most obvious one, and I think many people actually do this, they claim more charitable deductions than they actually contributed, or don't report side income. Or for that matter, if you work in small business, house cleaning or a painter or whatever, will not report all of that income. Are you saying that there are people who say that they're more generous to charities than they actually are, and then they're claiming it? Yes. Okay, that seems like really, really crummy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, is there some sense of how much the federal government loses out because of that, and what would that mean for the debt and deficit? Well, it's about 16% of the total revenue is not collected. This is a thing called the tax gap, which is the difference between... If all taxes were paid completely honestly, then revenues would increase by about 16%, which in the end would, of course, uh, balance our budget. Wow. Okay. That's significant. And it's very, very very difficult to collect all taxes. Even the most efficient countries 
in tax collection, the Scandinavian countries, they lose about 6 to 8% in uh, the so-called tax gap. Um, we're about 16%, and there are other countries that are much higher than us. So Italy is about 35%, has a 35% tax gap. So it's a huge, huge amount of money. Okay, so what you're saying is that no country has 100% compliance, but that no. the United States might be able to make some progress on this, huh? Absolutely. One of the issues with the U.S., and it's related to the tax reform and the comments we were making earlier, is that our system is so complex. The United States has by far the most complex tax system in the world. And because of the complexity, there's all kinds of ways that people can wheedle around in the system, sometimes quite legally and sometimes illicitly or fully illegally. So in other words, the very complexity of the tax system enables tax avoidance. Mm. Uh, Chris, what we hear Republicans saying is that they want to simplify the tax code. And I wish they would. You don't see that in the current plan? No, not at all. Mm -hmm. I don't. But that if it were simpler, compliance would increase. What are other reasons people don't pay their taxes or all of their taxes? Well, it's a bit of a vicious cycle, really. Because so many people are able to avoid some of their taxes, lots of people believe that Others are not paying their fair share, quote unquote. And if you believe that others are not paying their fair share, you are more likely to do whatever you can to avoid as much as you can get away with. Uh. And that becomes this vicious cycle. So, again, the complexity of the system leads people to believe that others aren't paying. And therefore, if others are paying, why should I? And, of course, others look at you and have the same reaction. Well, this gets into behavioral economics, doesn't it? Uh, if... There's an effect of tax non-compliance that's related to how I feel about my neighbor and what my neighbor is doing. Could you harness that to get more compliance? Absolutely. So one of the things that behavioral economics has really worked on is the idea that people want to do what they think their neighbors or other like them are doing. And if people believe that others are following the rules, whether it's tax rules or speeding rules on the highway, they are likely to do the same thing. If they think that other people are violating the rules or the laws, then they're likely to do that. And so when the tax system is complex and people are getting away with something or the president of the United States won't let us know how much he's paid in taxes, we assume he's not. And if he's not, why should I? This goes back for a long time, but get on a highway. On most highways in uh, Colorado, in my experience, is people drive five miles an hour over the speed limit, right? Why? It's because everybody drives five miles an hour <laughs> over the speed limit. Well, this, this reminds me of, I think it was Excel doing this. They were publishing on your bill your energy consumption and then your neighbor's energy consumption. Exactly. And it was a little bit of a kind of a shaming, right? Like if you were an energy hog, this was a way of discreet, well, maybe not so discreetly telling you so. That's um, right. I think this has been done even with child support, for instance, trying to <laughs> to raise how much compliance there is with child support and spousal support. How, how could the IRS harness what you're talking about here? <laughs> well, there are a number of things that can be done. Experiments have been done in, in lots of countries. I'd say Britain is the one that's really tried the most in this. Richard Thayer, who just won the Nobel Prize in economics as a behavioral economist and uh, wrote a book called Nudge, which is was very influential in tax policy. I mean, doing things like showing what share of taxes you, you pay, what where your taxes go. People have a belief that most of their taxes are 
open quote, wasted, right? And if you think your taxes are wasted, that is, they go to something you don't want, you're more likely to cheat on your taxes. So one of the things that they've done is they show people what their tax money is spent on. And most people actually approve of the vast majority of what our taxes are, are used for. Then they're more likely to pay, and indeed, as our experiments show, then they're more likely to say, well, I'm actually willing to pay more for that. One other kind of interesting point here, and goes to your uh, question about how could we get more people to pay more. Um, one way to do that is to actually get women to fill out the tax forms. Women are more honest than men in all cases. Okay, and, and research bears this out. Absolutely. Clear as a bell. Some of your research is funded by something called the European Research Council. Why the heck do Europeans want to know how Americans view taxing and spending? Well, the research project was funded to understand tax compliance generally. And I'm a strong believer that you learn more about one country by comparing it to many countries. And of course, the United States is an important country. Our tax compliance rates, the amount of tax evasion, are about average within the OECD. So there are some countries that are significantly better than we are and some that are significantly worse. So uh, I compared five different countries uh, Romania, Sweden, Italy, Britain, and the U.S., and multiple locations in each of those countries to try and understand what motivates people to pay taxes or cheat on their taxes and what motivates them to be you know, compliant in general. And we found, I was surprised, I should say, that Americans are actually quite willing to contribute. There's a sense in the U.S. even, and certainly amongst economists often, that we, Americans in particular, but people in general, will cheat if they get an opportunity to. And I was happy to find out that, in fact, most people are willing to contribute to a public good when they see it as a public good, and Americans are particularly so. Any sense for how Coloradans in particular feel about taxes versus other states? Bluntly, they're the most honest of any people we studied in the United States. Coloradans actually are very much like Swedes. There are obviously some people that do cheat on their taxes, but um, it's lower here in our experiments, at least, that lower here than any other state that we studied. And we studied five other states from Hawaii to New York to North Carolina. What do you think it's about? Um, I think that people in Colorado tend to believe that the government is fairly efficient and does a fairly good job. And I think it's quite that simple. Sven, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Sven Steinmo is a political economist at CU Boulder, and he's part of a research project called Willing to Pay that looks at tax policy. You can find the federal budget balancer at CPR.org. And there you can also watch two videos encouraging people to pay their taxes. One is a Donald Duck cartoon from World War II. The other is from the Swedish tax authority, and it imagines a city where no one pays their taxes. After the recession, Colorado's economy bounced back and became the envy of the country. That's not expected to change anytime soon. A new report from CU Boulder is chock full of good news. CPR's business reporter Ben Marcus has read through it, talked with the authors, and then sat down with CPR's Vic Vela. So, Ben, Colorado will add a lot of new jobs next year. In fact, CU is forecasting 47,000 new jobs. But there's good and bad in that number, right? 
Right. So 47,000 new jobs in 2018 is nothing to sneeze at. And some states would love that kind of growth. And the economists at CU Leeds School of Business say it'll likely put Colorado in the top 10 nationally for Mm. job creation next year. But not only that, the job gains are expected in every major sector of Colorado's economy. Well, okay, so that's the good news. Now the not-so-good news, right? So 47,000 jobs translates to a growth rate of less than 2%. Okay. And that's only half the number of jobs created just a couple of years ago. Uh, new business formation is strong here. Uh, those businesses are having trouble, though, finding workers to fill jobs. And that's actually a big part of what's slowing job creation in Colorado. There just aren't enough workers to fill the positions that are being created. Hmm. Okay, so help me out here then. So if, if there aren't enough qualified workers, shouldn't wages be going up as businesses compete for talent that's, uh, that's all around? Well, you'd think. And there's surely some of that happening in like highly educated, high-wage fields like software design or aerospace engineering. But CU found that three out of every four jobs that was created last year paid below the state average. Wow. So there's lots of job creation in the leisure and hospitality sector, for instance. Those restaurant and hotel workers tend to make less money. And industries that pay higher wages like oil and gas, they've struggled recently, and that's been dragging down the average pay. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up oil and gas. Uh, after years of decline, there's actually some optimism there, right? Lots of optimism, actually. Oil prices are up more than 30% since this summer. There are more than 30 drill rigs consistently operating in the state. That's double what it was about a year and a half ago. And CU says there was solid job growth last year, and they expect solid job growth in drilling next year as well. And this is important not just for the drilling industry, the energy industry, but the fiscal health of local governments that rely on the tax revenue from those drilling operations. Okay, well, that's good news for Colorado's rural economy, but there's another tough year in agriculture ahead. Right, especially for grain farmers. So the world is awash in wheat and corn, which is driving down prices, and that isn't expected to change. Those farmers will continue to deal with declining profits. Now, the news is much better for the cattle market, which dominates agricultural revenue in Colorado. But there's concern there, too, because more restrictive international trade policies could be on the way. President Donald Trump has said he wants to renegotiate NAFTA, and Colorado's a major beef exporter to Mexico. Still, overall, there's a lot to be optimistic about when it comes to Colorado's economy. Colorado's economy is very strong. We have very low unemployment. There's job growth across diverse industries. Oil prices are up. More construction is forecast for next year, especially in housing, which is sorely needed. And even the bad news is kind of good. So brick-and-mortar retail jobs are shrinking, like Macy's is closing stores. But at the same time, e-commerce shipment centers, those jobs are increasing. So there's some replacement there. And even the brick-and-mortar stores in Colorado are doing fairly well compared nationally. So in part, that's because of the population growth coming to Colorado. Malls here aren't sitting vacant like they are in other parts of the country. Now, the caveat to all of this is that any shock to the economic system could disrupt things. Some unforeseen circumstance could affect the national and international economy, which would affect Colorado, but nobody's predicting that. CPR's business reporter Ben Marcus discussing the latest economic forecast for Colorado with Vic Vela. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
The new album from Denver cornetist Ron Miles is called I Am a Man. That's the slogan used by striking African-American sanitation workers in Memphis in 1968. A little more of the background here. Martin Luther King Jr. had traveled to Memphis to support the strikers. And on April 4th, He was struck dead by an assassin's bullet. Ron Miles was just four then, but he remembers watching King's funeral on TV, and he's never forgotten the images of the striking workers and their signs proclaiming their essential humanity. I am a man. Ron, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm going to say that this album was just chosen by the New York Times as one of the best of 2017. I am a man. What does that phrase mean to you? How does it resonate? Well, I think... It has been just a, uh, something that's resonated really for my whole life about this sense about recognizing each other's humanity. I mean, I, I'm deeply, I, th- I consider myself pretty religious. And, and you know, in the New Testament, it's kind of like, you know, Jesus shows up and says, in a way, kind of like, you guys, these 10 seem to be too much for you guys to really grapple with. So let me just have one. Th- these this, tens, these 10 commandments. Yeah. Uh-huh. Why don't we just try one? Just love everybody like I've loved you. Can we just start with that? <laughs> and then we'll go to the other stuff after that. And that I feel in this time, particularly this political climate now where there seems to be a move to diminish another's humanity. Um and 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 a kind of cynicism about that that I, I, I find really really dangerous and I think we have to do everything we can to go out there and and recognize and respect each other and and start from that common place. Can you think of a time in your life where because uh, perhaps the color of your skin, you you felt that you were not being treated as a man? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I remember, right, just this comes to my mind right now. I remember I would go to these camps in the summer in Emporia, Kansas. and As a kid? Uh, as I was in high school, mm. uh, the Clark Terry Jazz Camp. And the first time I went, it was kind of like you see both sides of it. I, I didn't drive, so Greg Gispert, who's a wonderful, wonderful trumpet player, plays in Lincoln Center, his dad drove Greg and I out to Emporia, Kansas, in his car. And it was, you know, we're just hanging. It was so beautiful. And I think I had to come home by myself, and I rode the trailways home. So the the bus. The bus. And so I went to this place where they pick you up in Emporia, and... I remember, like, people calling me the N-word, like, it was a barrage of, I was like, I must must have been 17, 18, 18, I think. And then, so finally the bus shows up, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And and so I, like, get on the bus driver, and and I'm about to get on, and the bus driver calls me the N-word. It's like, oh, my gosh. I just finally just slump in my seat and just take this ride home. And, And so... You know, so you have those kind of moments, and um, I can look back on it and just go like, man, that was was wild. And and being eighteen, so overt. Oh oh, my goodness, it was just like, yeah, it was pretty wild. And to think, you know, you're just you know eighteen and trying to kind of factor that in. But then I had just been driven out by you know this white man and his son in the most generous way, and it was so you kind of like get to see both sides of it, and and you have to make a choice at that point too. I mean, are you gonna 
you have to realize that you're going to be confronted with this, but you also have have had a chance to experience the other side of it quite generously. So through music and through music, yeah. yeah. The songs on "I Am a Man" are all instrumentals, so obviously no lyrics. But through the music, were you trying to connect? the struggles of the civil rights era to today's political climate, which you have mentioned. Yeah, I think so. And also with the sense that I'm a 54-year-old jazz musician. I like that you've lost <laughs> Yes, count. I've lost count. <laughs> I, have to, I have to go to my daughter's age and add 30 to it. So okay. that's because I'm 53. She's 23. Um, so I'm not Kendrick Lamar. I'm not these other visionaries who are young and and have their view. I've lived a different kind of life, and I've got kids their age. And so reflecting on this, not only in taking my life into account, but my kids' life and my kids' experiences, and through jazz music and instrumental music, trying to find a way to comment and be relevant in our time. Is it easier for them than it was for you? I don't know that it is easy. I hope it is easier in some ways mm-hmm. um, because I think that we always try and hopefully make the place a little bit better for those who come after us. But it's, but they have their own difficulties too. They live in this time where you can find out anything at any moment and, and it's right there at your disposal. And there's also lots of negative energy that comes in as well. It's almost like they take about when you get a computer in your house, it's almost like just opening the front door and telling your kids, just go on out, go on out there. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to talk about the uh, other musicians on the new album. The guitarist is your friend and longtime collaborator, Bill Frizzell. And I should mention that the two of you were recently inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. Uh, then there's drummer Brian Blade, pianist Jason Moran, and bassist Thomas Morgan. Uh, This is your album. You wrote all the songs and you're the band leader, but there are long stretches where you don't play a note. track called Darken My Door. And what you don't hear there is cornetist Ron Miles. Uh, that is on purpose. But what, what is it like to sort of seed this time musically over to them well, and step back? Well, for one, they're, I think they're some of the greatest musicians on the planet, so I feel I have the best seat in the house. But, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Duke Ellington's music. And there are many songs in the Duke Ellington canon where he doesn't play a single note mm-hmm. and you know it's a Duke Ellington piece Miles Davis had pieces where he's playing organ no trumpet on it and you still you put the record and it's like I think that's a Miles Davis record <laughs> and so hopefully that that sense that that your songwriting gives people a place to play and, and you don't feel like it's like having a conversation it's always good sometimes just to sit and listen and see if you had anything to add and sometimes I didn't have anything at that point Why did you want to work with these particular musicians? They're my favorite musicians on the planet. It's a dream team for me. I mean, I, they're some of my favorite musicians that have ever played this music. And I, uh, Thomas was the only one who I'd never met before. Um, but Bill, 
suggested that Thomas would be perfect, and he was exactly right. No one plays like him. This is again a bassist, Thomas Morgan. Yeah, Yeah. I couldn't have even predicted what he would play even. And the bass is so important to the foundation of a piece. Oh, yes. Yeah, so a lot is riding on that person. Mm -hmm. And and he was, at you know, we all had moments where we had to kind of go back and fix something. And Thomas, I think was the one person who didn't have to fix anything. <laughs> <laughs> he played everything perfectly. I think at one point... I hate fr- people like that. I know. Who are these people? I was like, what are you talking about? I remember uh-huh. the one point he played something and he actually asked the, the engineer, could you move that like two seconds ahead? It was a free part and he responded to what I played. No, two seconds later. He, but he jumped on it too soon. He felt like, could you just back that up two seconds? It, it felt like I was just on it too fast. And it's like, that's all you've got. Mm. So perfect notes and and just a beautiful musician. That's actually a track called Revolutionary Congregation and Ron, you've already mentioned that you're a very religious person. What does that title mean? Well, I always like these kind of revolutionaries in in our kind of religious history. And I think of of even Jesus as as a kind of revolutionary figure. And Dr. King and and, and lots of folks who, who, who use this kind of spirituality as a way to advance causes for human rights and human dignity. And it's not just sitting in the back of the church quietly and and reverently, even though that's that's the way a lot of people express themselves, but there are people who are taking it to the powers that be and demanding of them that they represent what that they be what they say they are. And I think we see that a lot these days that people are let off the hook. They can say they're one way and not have to stand up. Even in this kind of sense about sexual harassment that's happening right now. It gives us a chance to decide as a society, are we are we who we say we are? Or is that just a are these just catchphrases that we can throw out that, that don't have any responsibility behind them? I want to get back to your own faith in, in a bit. Mm-hmm. Because as I recall the last time you were here, you were trying to figure out whether a religious life, almost professionally, mm-hmm. was in the cards for you. But there is a short film on your website about making this new album. And in it, you say to be a part of the music, you have to be comfortable with not knowing. Kind of a religious thought there too, right? Yeah. The unknown. But what do you mean by that musically, not knowing? Well, I think if you're really going to improvise, then you can't know what's going to happen because nothing's happened yet. And, you know, you go to school and you learn all these theories, you learn all these techniques, you know, this scale goes with this chord and blah, blah, blah. But in the end... You've got to let all that go when it comes time to make music if you want to let the music be able to be all that it can be because otherwise you're limiting it to your own reality. And so I want to open it up to beyond that. And so the kind of mystery of it is scary, but you have the possibility of going beyond what you know. I mean, if that isn't a metaphor for life, I don't know what is. Yeah, that's the great thing about this music. keeps us coming back to it, right? (laughs) So, uh, indeed, the last time we spoke in 2014, you'd begun something called the discernment process Mm -hmm. with your church, which is Episcopalian, right? Yes. And essentially, this process is to find out if you should become a priest. Yes. That's one of the things that it could discern. (laughs) Yes, it could discern that you also—and since we're all kind of priests in a way, or certainly 
um, we can be lay uh, uh, leaders in our church. Yeah, but we're talking the official thing, right? Here. Right. Yeah. So I was, I it was discerned that I was supposed to enter the priesthood. That was what it finally came down to. And so I was actually supposed to have a meeting with the bishop yesterday, but I got ill, and I'm going to meet with him in two weeks to kind of figure out where we go from here. Whether I go in to seminary in the next little bit, but I think for sure I'm going to just start taking classes at Metro where I teach in religious studies and just start accumulating knowledge. Wow. And because uh, my kids started school, um, my son just started this past semester. So I want to make sure those guys get off to a good start before I jump in there. But that was what the discernment ended up being. Would you be sort of the jazz priest? I don't know. I would be just hopefully a good one. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> and that's the other thing too is I don't want to be a bad one. So I, w- I would start and see how it goes. And I'm sure... People will let me know as they have in music where I'm going down the wrong path. Maybe I need to go over there a little bit. But you don't see these as mutually exclusive uh, music well, and the priesthood, do you? You know, I don't know because I don't want to be bad at either one. Uh. And I, I can't do music kind of as an avocation. I, I, I would have to really be able to play at the level at least that I've played before. And if the religious studies took me down a road where I needed to dedicate time to that, then I would probably stop playing in public, really. Hmm. Um, and that was, I think, part of the the discussion with the bishop when we came to this decision, that it might lead to me not playing in public anymore. And was I aware of that? And I said I was. So we'll see how that goes. Were you surprised by the outcome of discernment? I was a little bit disappointed surprised actually uh, because I'm not a very natural speaker that's for sure and I also don't have like any kind of business experience so because part of being a, a pastor is you're kind of a CEO too to read you right know, you're like, leading a congregation yeah. and and there are collections to yes, monitor and all that stuff and yeah. and I don't certainly have skills naturally in that way but I think they felt I could learn to be better at those things huh Remind me how old you are. I'm sorry. I am 54. 54. Four, yeah. My daughter's birthday is today. Actually, she turned 24 today. Right. Happy this birthday. Is, this is how you figure out your own age. Exactly. 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 At this point, that's how we do it. Uh, I want to ask you about one other song on the new album, I Am A Man. It's a lovely ballad called Mother Juggler. I just want to be in the most comfortable chair in the world, like next to a window listening to that. I heard Bill Frizzell, man, when he hits that low E string, it's like it's all over. <laughs> the guitarist. Tell me about this song. Well, um, I wrote it for my mom in, in that sense that I kind of came up in a generation where women were entering in kind of the, the workplace in mass. You know, I was born in 1963. And there's this kind of sense that that they carry the baggage of, of what mothers had been traditionally expected to do in the home 
and the stuff they were supposed to do at work. And no one cut them any slack out of any of those. It's mm-hmm. like you're supposed to go to work all day and make sure dinner was ready and do the laundry and all that kind of stuff. And if there and, was a moment's sort of infraction. Oh, yeah. Everybody was going to notice that. Uh-huh. Exactly. And and they and my mom and moms like her were just doing it with like so much grace. And, and now being a parent, you look back and you're like, oh, my gosh, I don't see how they did that. And and I always like like titles that that were not overly um, uh, I guess saccharine in a way because I always like Parliament and like Outcast and stuff. So Mother Juggler kind of like felt like I could kind of it had that edge that those women have too because they're not soft. They they got they, there's a lot of strength in there too. So I wanted a title that reflected that. Were you proud of your mom? Oh, extremely. My greatest hero, without a doubt. Thanks for being with us. Oh, my great pleasure. Thank you for playing the music, and thank you for all you do for the music here. Cornetist Ron Miles was recently inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. His new album is called I Am a Man. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. He's one of the most notorious figures in Colorado history, but a lot of myths surround cannibal Alfred Packer and what happened in the winter of 1874 as he and five other men prospected for gold. His story and the search for new evidence are the focus of an exhibit at the Museum of the West in Grand Junction. Packer's case is endlessly fascinating, as I learned a couple of years ago when I talked to author Harold Schechter about his book, Maneater. Welcome to the program. Uh, thank you for having me. Why focus on Alfred Packer? You've written many books yes. about darker figures. Yes. Uh, well, I've always been uh, interested actually in the subject of cannibalism, <laughs> for better or worse. I was actually thinking of doing my PhD dissertation on cannibalism in American literature. You know, uh, Melville's first book was about cannibalism and Poe wrote about cannibalism and Mark Twain has a famous story, Cannibalism in the Cars. And that's when I first became aware of the Alfred Packer story. And then uh, a number of years later, I spent a year uh, living in Colorado. I taught for a year at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Uh, so ate at the Alfred Packer Memorial Grill. That's um, right. The, a cafeteria on campus named for Packer. Yes. And then I became uh, a writer of historical true crime books uh, about uh, many of America's most notorious psychopathic killers. This is a small point, but an important one for the rest of our interview. Yes. Um, about Packer's first name. Yes. So he is often referred to as Alford. Correct. His given name, mm-hmm. his baptismal name, you write, is Alfred. Alfred, But yes. he was not a fine speller. Yeah. All the official records, his best baptismal records, his army enlistment records, uh, the later trial records, correctly uh, spell his name as Alfred. He himself uh, was not early on a particularly literate person. And um, when he first joined the army, actually got a, a tattoo, which spelled his name Alford. But Alfred, Alfred. is the correct uh, name. So the difficulty of telling this story yeah. of the cannibal Alfred Packer is that he often lied. Mm-hmm. Yes. He gave, for instance, two vastly different accounts of what happened to mm-hmm. his prospecting party that winter. Add to that press accounts of the time, which were really exaggerated. You know, mm-hmm. headlines like the fiend who became very corpulent 
upon a diet of human steaks. Yes. What can you say for sure happened that winter of 1874? Uh, well, really, all you can say for sure happened is that uh, Packer and five other prospectors who had come to the San Juan Mountains from uh, Utah. Uh, this was actually during um, a discovery of big silver loads in the San Juan Mountains. They were called the Silvery San Juans. Uh, he had come with, they had actually come with a party of 21 men. Uh, they had gotten lost in the wilderness and were taken in by uh, the Utes, uh, led by Chief Ure. And then a, a couple of the parties, um, against the advice of Chief Ure, decided to venture ahead. So Packer and five other prospectors left Chief Ure's camp in February of 1874. Two months later, Packer himself emerged from the wilderness uh, at um, an Indian agency, looking unusually well-nourished um, for a man who had spent a couple of months uh, in the frozen wilderness. Uh, and all we know for sure is that his other five companions had been murdered and their uh, flesh had been consumed by Packer. And Packer never denied that he had cannibalized the other men. What he did deny was that he had cold-bloodedly murdered them in order to rob them and eat them. The fundamental question, right, is not whether he was a cannibal. Right. It's were the deaths of those in his party uh, out of uh, at his own hands? Exactly. Did they die because of the elements? Mm -hmm. And well, then, and, yeah. and Packer uh, obviously then taking advantage of the. Yeah. Well, they the definitely food didn't source. die because of the elements. Um, because when their bodies were finally found, it was clear that um, four of them uh, had been murdered in their sleep. The fifth one had also been killed. But yeah, I mean, Packer never denied that he was a cannibal. One of the myths about Packer. If you go online, uh, people say, well, he was the only man ever tried and convicted for cannibalism in the history of the United States. This uh, is not true. In fact, cannibalism is not even illegal in most states of the Union. It's only illegal, as far as I know, in one state of the Union. Really? Yeah. Okay. But no, he was uh, tried and convicted of murdering them. He, he claimed Packer's story was uh, all the men were in a severe state of starvation. They had been reduced to eating their own moccasins and uh, uh, foraging for wild rosebuds and eating pine gum. Uh, and uh, Packer's story was that he had gone off one day to uh, scout around to see if they could find any sign of this Indian agency they were headed for. And when he returned, uh, one of the men had murdered the other four. As, fa as Packer approached, Bell attacked him. And Packer said he shot Bell in self-defense. Packer is put in jail. Mm -hmm. And if, through a series of circumstances that may involve the fact that the county couldn't afford to keep him there, yes. then goes on the lam yes. for a period of about nine years. Yes, and then in 1883, 
one of the former members of that 21-man prospecting party who had known Packer uh, happened to encounter him and notify the authorities. And Packer was quickly arrested and brought back to Colorado. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Harold Schechter, whose new book is Man Eater, The Life and Legend of an American Cannibal, uh, a reference, of course, to Alfred Packer. Mm-hmm. And so he is brought back for trial. Yeah. He is found guilty of murder. He is close to being hanged for it. And then through a legal twist, Mm -hmm. it is discovered that there is actually no statute on the Colorado books that mean he can be uh, truly convicted of murder. And so that is thrown out Mm -hmm. because of this oddity in the law that basically says you can't be committed, uh, you can't be tried for murder. Well, you couldn't be tried for murder. Between 1870 and 1881, there's just a gap in the Colorado law. Exactly. Then there's a second trial. Yes. He's found guilty, not sentenced to death the second time, but to 40 years in prison. One of the largest sentences handed down at that time. Correct. Yeah. Well, he was was, um, uh, found guilty of five counts of manslaughter in the second trial. Uh, because of double jeopardy, he couldn't be retried for murder. So they tried him on five counts of manslaughter, and he was given uh, the maximum sentence of eight years for each count. What do you believe? Did he commit the murders? You know, there's so much ambiguity surrounding the case, and ultimately sort of pushed in a way to come down on one side. Uh Uh, I have to say that it it, it, it seems more likely to me than not that he was guilty. And then, it, it, you know, the other part of it is he lived for two months in very close proximity to the corpses of his former companions and dining off their flesh. So uh, it, it, the story, again, just seems implausible that he told. On the other hand, you know, who knows? I mean, again, there will always be a certain amount of uncertainty about yeah. the Packer case, you know, as there is with many other famous American crimes like Lizzie Borden. And the axe. Yes. yes. You write that several people became advocates mm-hmm. for Alfred Packer, the yeah. cannibal, yeah. including uh, a reporter at the time named Polly Pry. Mm-hmm. And she helped turn public opinion in Packer's favor. Yes, such that he was ultimately granted parole. Mm-hmm. Correct. Well, Polly Pry was a pioneering woman journalist who, who began her career in New York City. And she, she began to investigate the Colorado penal system. And she paid a visit to Canyon City. And she encountered Alfred Packer. Polly became convinced of his innocence. And she really kind of saw him as a sort of a heroic figure from Colorado's frontier past. You know, this Someone man. who had survived this harsh winter at any, by any means. Yes, exactly. And, you know, and, and of course, it was not unique in having resorted to what's called survival cannibalism. You know, there had been the Donner Party before him. Uh, there had been a number of uh, Arctic expeditions and so on, you know, where people had been uh, forced to cannibalize the corpse of their companions, and and, uh, they had never been prosecuted for it. Uh, So Polly uh, took on Packer's uh, cause and launched a crusade in the pages of the Denver Post to get him freed uh, and ultimately succeeded in that. 
And later press accounts are somewhat sympathetic toward the aging Alfred Packer, who lives for a time in the small town of Sheridan near mm-hmm. Littleton. Yes. And uh, yeah, Packer became, you know, well, uh, almost sort of a, a beloved figure. You know, I mean, all throughout his life and all during his incarceration, he apparently was, you know, this very generous and kindly person. And he did become a kind of folk figure. Fascinating. Thanks for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Harold Schechter is the author of Maneater, The Life and Legend of an American Cannibal. And the exhibit now at the Museum of the West in Grand Junction apparently has evidence to support Packer's claim of innocence. You can see that show through most of next year. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner.